One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the weekly exploration of the practically magical way memory and song can become bound together in us all. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Dan Navarro. Dan's a singer-songwriter whose career started as a songwriter, most often with Eric Lowen. For artists including Pat Benatar, they wrote We Belong, The Bangles, Jackson Brown, The Temptations, Dion Warwick, and more. In the 1990s and 2000s, he and Eric recorded and toured as the acclaimed acoustic duo Lowen and Navarro until Eric's retirement in 2009. Dan's been performing solo since, touring nationally almost constantly. Dan has a parallel career as a voice actor and singer in films including Happy Feet, Rio, The Lorax, and many more. Most recently, he sang on six Lin-Manuel Miranda songs in the Disney film Encanto. He's also done voice work for many TV shows, including Family Guy and American Dad, and for video games and TV commercials and more. Dan's latest album, Horizon Line, was produced by multiple Grammy winner Jim Scott, who's worked with the likes of Tom Petty, Wilco, and the Dixie Chicks. He was in town to play a gig at the Americana Community Music Association in Fort Myers, so graciously stopped by our studio with his guitar to give us his three song stories. Hey there, Dan. How are you? I am good, man. I, I was going to ask if you drove down in Vanessa LeVan. No, but you then know, I met you up front you were in a Prius. I retired Vanessa a year ago. It happened during a July 2022 trip across the country for a folk festival. And gas was pretty expensive then. It's come down a little. Um, and I live in Southern California where gas then was about six bucks a gallon. Ten Phillips, five days to get across the country. And then I realized $1,000 to get across the country in five days or 300 bucks to get across in five hours. So, And then I realized I've got this Prius that I was going to give to my son. And it got nailed for his catalytic converter. So he goes, I don't know if I should have this on the streets of L.A. So I took it back and decided to retire the van Possibly permanently. We're still not sure. I, I can't quite bear to part did with you, it. Did you sleep in the van? Well, that was the issue. Was I quit After a year, I quit sleeping in the okay, van. Okay, so you didn't need it for the, for the domicile anymore. Exactly. And so 15 miles to the gallon versus 45 was a no-brainer. Uh, and I can fit all the gear I need in the Prius. The Prius will hold an awful lot of stuff. And it's not as much of a target. It's not nearly as sexy. But it does the job. Yeah. Of course, I had the windows blacked out, which is really cool, except when you're trying to make a left turn in rural Alabama at night. <laughs> so then in like five degree weather, I'm rolling the windows down so I can see where I'm turning. But it still does the job, and I still like doing this job on the ground. So you've got a gig tonight at the ACMA. You I do. said you've been here once before? It was once before about six years ago, and it went fabulously. And, you know, I haven't gotten down into Florida much at all in my career. So anytime something comes up, I take the opportunity, and it's been really cool. I will confess I favor the Gulf Coast over the Atlantic. Who That's doesn't? just me. Only sane people want the <laughs> well, other side. Yeah, exactly. Side. <laughs> and so, I mean, I've done Fort Lauderdale and I've done Orlando, but um, for me, I like the Gulf Coast a lot. And I do do the um, 30A Festival up in South Walton County every year for about the last seven years, and I just love it up there. So, so uh, I have so much we want to get to. We'll get to it all, but let's get on the proper track here. Um, so where did you grow up, and how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, 
I was raised in the 60s. I went to college in the in the very, 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 very... I went to college in 1969, so I was going to say very early 70s. I've done some math on when you Yeah, were I mean, it's in the math is nine, <laughs> and Wikipedia's got it all out there, so there's no point in hiding it. Um, I grew up in a town called Calexico, California, which is a small town on the Mexican border, inland from San Diego, about 120 miles, 50 miles from the Arizona border, smack in the middle of the desert. But because the Colorado would flood every so often the soil is really fertile so my one square mile hometown that's that butts up against the mexican border is surrounded by about eight miles of farmland and then it's pristine desert on one side and scrub brush mesquite and tumbleweeds in the other i grew up down there it was a city of ten thousand when i was living there mexicali mexico it's capital of baja and it was a hundred thousand then now, Calexico's 30,000, Mexicali's 1.2 million, mm. and it's the capital, and it's, but it's in the middle of the freaking desert, 120 degrees in the summer, uh, not much going on, a lot of people have lived there generation after generation after generation, and I moved there from Los Angeles when I was five, um, and I never liked it. I mean, I love my friends, I still have roots there, my family's completely gone from there. And I go back for all my high school reunions, but I wanted something different. I wanted out, hmm. and I never got out till I went to college. What went, was the musical uh, fabric around you when you were a kid? Twofold, well, threefold: Mexican music from across the border, um, American top forty radio, which is the greatest training ground and the greatest library for everything, because you would have Sinatra next to the Four Tops, next to Led Zeppelin, next to you know, and certainly Beatles and Stones, because I'm of that era. Um, but, you know, novelty songs, they're coming to take me away, ha-ha, they're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha, to the funny farm with <laughs> trees and flowers and chirping birds and basket weavers sitting twiddled the thumbs and toes, and they're coming to take me away. And it's, that was 1967, and I still remember it. Um, it's a miracle. The miracle. Well, that's the nature of yeah, this piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm also classically trained as a French horn player, so I played symphonic music in school. And and marches, of course, but symphonic music, Mexican music, American Top 40, and my dad's record collection of crooners. And so that's what I grew up on. I'm of an age where I started singing along to records um, a couple of years before Beatles came out. So Sinatra was the pinnacle. And then Beatles come out and it brooms everything out of the way. Mm. And I, you know, I remember locking myself in the bathroom trying to comb my hair down over. You had been forehead. like twelve or thirteen when the Beatles were really blowing up. Uh, Nineteen sixty-three. I was. I was eleven. Eleven. Yeah, okay. I was eleven. I'm born in fifty-two. You guys, and uh, so I grew up on a on a vast melange of different kinds of music. And what got to me, um, other than silliness, what got to me was the stuff that tugged on heartstrings. And I, I have a penchant for that. Um, songs of deep longing will lay me out, absolutely lay me out. And I just got into it. My mom, I mean, this isn't even on my list, but my mom, because I don't remember what the song was. I was watching some television program, bawling my eyes out at three years old. And I vaguely remember it. Mom said, what's the matter? And I'm going, the song is so sad. <laughs> How would I know? Yeah. But it got under my skin to this day. The melodic passage in Shenandoah, the roll away, which is married with a contrary bass line. Da, da, da. Those two parts will put a lump in my throat. If I hear it quoted in other pieces of music, lay me out. Hmm. But that became what was important because it hurt so good. 
you said you played French horn. Yeah. Um, when did a guitar hit your hands for the first time? Second year of college, I said, I've had enough of not playing the guitar. Um, I was 18. I skipped first grade because um, I was reading on the first grade level in kindergarten. So they just basically said he's he's going to be slovenly and lazy if we don't skip him. And then they skipped me and I became slovenly and lazy. I was just going to say, yeah. it seems like you were destined for that either way. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty <laughs> much. And uh, so I skipped first grade. So I went all through school with kids a year older than I. So I graduated high school at 16, started UCLA at 17 in, 19, in, summer, in September 1969. And um, after about a year, I was starting to write lyrics and I wanted to sing. I didn't sing my first year at college, and I didn't sing in high school because there wasn't a boys' choir or a mixed choir. And one of the songs that I picked was when I first sang in public um, and, and what motivated it and what it did to me. So second year of college, a guy hears me and says, you should audition for the Men's Glee Club. And I did. I got in. It became my main thrust in school right around the time that I said, I got to learn how to play the dang guitar. I bought a guitar to learn how to play shortly after my 18th birthday. And sat, and within a month, I could accompany myself on a dozen songs, and it's been—I've been hell bent ever since. Did you start putting musical, you know, collaborations together? Did you start not playing for, with not other for people? another year? Not for another a year. year later, I started. So basically, beginning of third year at UCLA, I started writing, and I did have a guy that I would play with, and we would do the duo thing. Um, my first duo partner, Dan Carlson, I'm still in touch with him. And uh, he he actually opens for me occasionally at a couple of gigs because he's my age and he didn't, never did it as a career, but he loves it. So he decided that, you know, now he's kind of he's kind of retired and he plays out. Which resonated with you more as a kid, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. Stones were great. Um, Beatles. The inventiveness of the songwriting, the fact that they started the whole darn thing. Everything that came in their wake were basically being Beatles. And it's kind of funny to look at bands where it's apparent that they're not owning the long hair quite as comfortably. That these were, and, and what I've learned, of course, over the years is that the American ones were all folk singers. They all came up after the Kingston Trio. And then they went, we're going to grow hair and we're going to wear silly clothes and we're going to go get electric guitars, you know, and take some time and learn how to play. And. You know, I mean, the Birds were a folk band. The Love and Spoonful was a folk band. They all played out separately, and most of them knew each other. Uh, so this is, as I've learned the history and absorbed it, that's where it all came from. I'm going to extrapolate here. So yep. you, you played French horn. You were classically trained. You picked up a guitar. So you already had some theory in your head. You already understood how music was put together. You were probably learning some new songs. Did you then look at the Beatles and see what they were doing and understand that they were doing something more to a different degree when it came to their songwriting? Um, that actually didn't come until later. And the reason is that there was a point – um, in the very late 70s, about 10 years after I moved to L.A., when I start playing with Eric Lowen, the guy who was my partner for 20 years, and we were singing Waiters in a Restaurant. And the quality, That's not the name of a song. That's the, that's the thing you were doing. That's what we were doing. <laughs> well, this, it, it, I thought there was a song called Waiters in a Restaurant. We were singing Waiters in a Restaurant, and it, atten it tended to appeal to – People on their way up looking to try to have a job, a steady regular job where they could play some music occasionally, and people on their way down. Um, and Eric had had a, a deal. He had been a guy in a, in a guy's band on Capitol Records, and with the day they got dropped, he went and got a job there. Um, 
And we realized that the quality of music was only okay. So we sat around and started learning Beatles songs well enough to perform them live and started realizing it sounds really natural where they're going, but this is such unusual. Uh The progressions are weird, and yet they sound as comfortable as an old shoe. And that's when we started figuring out what they were doing, and it ended up – Eric was not a natural writer, and I was, but it informed both of our writing. And, you know – We'll get to your writing and to Eric and to the music you made and the other stuff you did, but let's do your first song. Ah, well, see, most, the consistency in most of the songs, and I think I mentioned to you that I actually put a much longer list together, um, all but one in the ones that I picked and about six of the ones that I left off the list all have to do with some form of falling in love, that they would take me to that moment when the spark would hit and the blood would rush and the goosebumps would happen. And so my first song is reminiscent of my first dance party as a kid. My friend Craig Holloway threw a dance party at his house. We were not that old. I was in the fifth grade. I was nine. My friends were 10. And his parents let him do this. And Sherry Stewart was the prettiest girl in class. And a song comes on and I muster up. And I I was a shy kid. And I was smaller and younger than my classmates, so they made sure I stayed shy. And, and I mean, at that point in time, throughout high school, until, college, until second year, third year of college, I couldn't get a date from a palm tree. It was just the way it was. It was I was dorky Danny. And um, this song came on that was dreamy and sweet and a little sad. And I asked Sherry Stewart to dance a slow dance. And she said yes, and I mean, I can feel it and smell it and remember it to this day. And the song was from somebody that, inter- I can. I, well, she wasn't a one-hit wonder, but to me she was because she had one outsized hit. Essentially a country singer who had a pop hit, a woman named Skeeter Davis, and a song called The End of the World. What was her name, the girl? Skeeter, oh, the girl, Sherry Stewart. Was Sherry taller than you? Oh, everybody was taller than me. Yeah, was, Sherry was taller than me. Were you doing a little box dance? The little, the little um, well, we didn't have the guts in those days. Well, you still had to hold one hand up. You, it, it wasn't oh, the two arms around each that, other. That didn't come along that didn't come, in, that didn't come into being until <laughs> high school. And that, every teacher was, was hell-bent on making sure, like, break it up. They were like boxing referees going, yeah, break it up, break it up. Um, and what you did in high school is you kept one foot firmly planted on the floor while you lifted the other one as much as propriety would allow <laughs> for about all that you could really do in high school at that point in time. But this was probably, I mean, I was nine years old in, in 1962. I love it. Or, yeah, 61, 62. The slow dance. The slow dance The slow dance moment. This Don't is they the know. End of the World by Skeeter Davis, released in 1962, like you said, on the album of the same name. This is song number one from our guest today, Dan Navarro. This is Three Song Stories. We call this biography through music. Goosebumps, man. Goosebumps I got when that song started, because I haven't actually listened. I didn't research. I kind of went into the memory banks, and I haven't heard that song in quite a few years, and it took me right back there on the... Ah, on the brick patio and playing on a little stereo system. And Sherry Stewart was as beautiful and as fetching as they came. And I don't know what the heck. I, I didn't know what I would do 
uh, you know, when we were kids. Yeah. I mean, holding hands was, I mean, holding hands was a big, big deal. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, boy. <laughs> but the, the sense of, you know, it's a song about losing love. And it taught me something about songwriting form. I mean, you know, talking about a phrase like, oh, it's, well, it's not the end of the world. No, it is. You know, don't they know, you know, how do they keep going when they don't know what's going on inside me? And I did, I mean, I'm, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, I was kind of a lonely kid and kind of a sad kid. Shortly before this dance party, uh, I had lost a brother in a swimming accident. So everything, songs of longing, sad songs, songs dealing with that kind of pathos resonated with me. I never thought I'd go into the business of creating them and making a living from it. And and my friend Gretchen Peters, who's a songwriter, has a T-shirt that says, Sad Songs Make Me Happy. And they were a place of solace to actually resonate with it. So that was that, was that and that's, that's the first big one. Uh, was being a songwriter in your brain by the time you went away to college or not? Well before. Well I mean, before. I, well, because what happened with... The Beatles was realizing, wait a minute, they write their own songs. So suddenly that became a high, a high bar. And um, some high school friends and I, two high school friends who played guitar and bass and had a band, uh, wanted to write songs. And I didn't know how to play, but I sang. So I would start writing lyrics. And they were all these sort of gut-wrenching, wrist-opening, you know, songs of lost love and longing for something. And to this day, I mean, the songs of deep longing do it for me. In particular, I got two all-time favorites, and that's um, Rainy Night in Georgia by Brooke Benton, written by Tony Joe White, and Wichita Lineman, which I actually put on an album. And in both of them, you can feel the longing, and so they, they resonate with me. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. That's what I started doing. So I was pretty much senior year in high school is when I, I need to start writing songs. What did you study at UCLA? Music. Okay. I was a music education major. took a year for me to figure that out because I also thought I might want to be an actor. Because um, I figured that was how you sing is you become an actor. And I didn't realize that there was a path through being a music major. Because although as a French horn player, I was only decent. I wasn't strong enough to be a, a performance major. Uh, I didn't know enough theory at the time to become a composition major. I ended up specializing in conducting. But when I went to school, it was the dark ages. There was no pop music program. You know, you could do jazz. You could do opera. You could do musical theater. Certainly in the era of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Cat Stevens, and James Taylor, and Jackson Brown, and Joni Mitchell, and Laura Nero, there was no path for that in my school. That one I blazed myself. And and still can't believe that I got somewhere. How uh, how'd you meet Eric Lowen? Eric Lowen met at that famous singing waiter restaurant. He had gone there to get a job, uh, and I had gone on a three week. So tour. you weren't friends that got a job together. You no no we, we met because well, of the job. Well, there's, there's no we. The answer is no to all of that. Oh wow, we weren't friends. He was hired to replace me when I went on a three week tour, oh, and I came back the from the tour, and he had my job. And so I didn't get Saturday night dinners. I ended up in weekday lunches with far smaller tips because he had my gig. And he, had, he was tall, blonde, built like an athlete, face like Dudley Do right? Big, jutting, gorgeous hunk of, <laughs> of bleh. And I hated him on sight. 
He had a better guitar. <laughs> he had a higher voice. Um, he was pretty. And he took your job. And he took my job. So <laughs> I didn't like him. And he didn't like me either because I thought I knew more than anybody. I was a little, you know, there's something about being in these sort of, you know, downtrodden situations that get some people thinking that they're king of the world when you're cleaning, when you're waiting tables. And so I thought I knew something because I'd had a couple of songs on records and, but it was a stall in my career. It wasn't even a career at that point in time. So we didn't like each other. Then one day, one night after hours, we were sitting around and we start singing with other people and we fall into harmonies and he hit the same note I did. So we both jumped to the note a third away, but we both did. So we realized, oh, he's gone to the other note. I'm going to go back to the original note, but he did the same thing. So we're, uh, and I looked at him. You were accidentally synchronized. We were totally synchronized. And I looked at him and I made a sideways V with the back of my hand and I flipped it for the front of my hand. In essence, going switch. He stayed high. I stayed low and we locked and I went, oh, it's you. You're the one. We're going to make 13 records. We're going to make 13 records together. (laughs) And that's when we started learning Beatles songs and other songs to up the ante. We sang together really well. And we said, you know, we better figure this friendship thing out. And we did. Um, He was my brother and my partner, you know, in one form or another for 34 years. Best friend I could ever imagine having. We did not always get along well. We got along like brothers, which means we would bicker and we would butt heads. And we had a big overlap in what we believed about music, but they were complementary areas. And I was not a great guitar player, and he was, and he was not a great songwriter, and, and I was better at it. And we learned, I did, it's not like we even taught each other. The environment of us working together gave us the ability to learn from one another organically, and he became a, a wonderful songwriter, and I got pretty darn good on the guitar. Still can't do leads, but I let other people do that. That sounds I'm the same way. Um, so you've written a bunch of songs that have made it out into the world that people won't realize that it was you who wrote them. Were those songs you were writing for that duo and that got picked up? Or were, did you also write songs specifically to put them out into the market? Bits of both. The, the big Pat Benatar song was written just to write it. And there's an entire story around that. Um, when we were, we wrote with the Bangles for the Bangles, so that was specifically for them. Pretty much from that point on, if we wrote with the artists, it was for them. The stuff that other artists picked up was just written to write, and they were written to maybe get cut. We belong. The, the, the Pat Benatar Gigantor Behemoth was just written to get through the day, and we were actually not. We had been in a band together and we're trying to get somewhere, and it was not working. I mean, there are two little. Postscripts to the stories that in the middle, and I'll keep them as brief as possible. He, we were so good. I said, "Man, I want to start a band with you." And he goes, "Nah, you're better as a solo." So he didn't start a band with me. A um, couple events le- led me to deciding to move to London to work. I had a second job as an assistant to a music manager, and he got a job in London. And I went, "Well, I want to go. I mean, I'm going to lose my job otherwise." And Eric doesn't want to start a band. Two weeks before I left, he says, "Hey, let's start that band." I went, "Dude, I'm moving." to England. How long? Possibly forever. If it if if it clicks. I went I ended up going for 8 months. We spoke by phone weekly and I would tell him what I was learning and what I was exposed to in basically post-punk England in 1980. And so when I came back, we we joined a band. 
and started working in earnest, but not on the duo. That lasted three years, and finally he said, you know, you're just not really holding, pulling your weight. I think you need to quit this band. And that was the end of my musical dream. I thought it was over. I got mad at him, and I didn't speak to him for two months. And I was over 30, and I figured that's it. You're done. It didn't happen. I was working in advertising for my uncle, and my uncle and his son, and his son is Dave Navarro, the rock star, um, now rock star, uh, from Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, had just, Dave's mother had just passed away um, at the hands of her boyfriend hmm. um, in, a, in a domestic violence tragedy. And so everything was falling apart, so I had to quit the band because I had to focus on my job and my family. And so I quit talking to him, and he calls up one day out of the blue and says, uh, hey, man, you want to write a song? And I want to just stick it because you've written five songs in your life, and you forced me out of the band. You selfish, inconsiderate. <laughs> but it occurred to me I wasn't doing anything, so I sucked it up and just said, fine. He's taking advantage of you, but take advantage of him. Get a song written. Nothing's going to happen to it anyway. Mm. No one will hear it. But you'll keep a toe in it as a hobby, which is better than not doing it, because I was dying. And we got together on September 22nd, 1983, and in 90 minutes wrote We Belong. And one year later, it was top five. A couple people have heard it. A couple people have heard it. It, I never expected it to ever get cut. I never expected it to. I mean, I did expect it to hit, because what happened is it went from zero to a guy calling and saying, I'm, I've just pitched it to Pat Benatar and she's doing it. What? What did you? Wait a minute. No, something's wrong with the phone because I thought I just heard you say you pitched it to Pat Benatar and she's doing it. Yeah. And it's probably going to be a hit. What story were you trying to tell with that song? I was tr- I'm, I'm trying to you know listen to the lyrics in my head now and imagine somebody thinking them up. Like, well, <laughs> I, was trying to, um, I was trying to exorcise the ghost of a relationship that had ended two years before. And I was still chewing on it here. Hey, where's that deep longing, you know, theme again? And I had held on. She had decided to try it with another guy. And then she decided to try it with another girl. And, you know, I figured I can be a better guy than anybody, but I can't be a better woman than anybody. So I was heartbroken and still kind of chewing on it two years later. And and, um, we had had a quote, our song which was We Belong Together by Ricky Lee Jones from 1981. And so I went in there going, I want to write a song that says, it doesn't matter if you're here, we belong together, which was complete nonsense. But that's what I felt. And so I go in and I start writing this thing to a chord progression he already had. And he looks at the lyrics. And I didn't want to show him the lyrics. Earlier that day, I had done a a vocal class with a friend of mine named Liz Lewis, who said, here's your problem. You're editing yourself. You're stifling your natural instincts. Because I wanted to fit in and do cool, hip stuff and get picked up. I didn't want to, I didn't believe that my actual personal thoughts were were worthy. Hmm. So I hid the lyric, and Eric says, remember what Liz just told you two hours ago? Show me the damn lyric. So I did, and he goes, I don't like this first bit. I like this, we belong to the light, we belong to the thunder, which had popped out of me. And and I started with the last line. I knew I wanted to end up at We Belong Together. He goes, I got an idea. And he he picks up a pad and he writes a verse. And I look at the verse going, yeah, I know that story. 
It was the verse as we recorded it. Uh, Pat Benatar changed three lines. The version that everybody knows has a couple of different lines from what I do every night. Well, I wrote, I dashed off the second verse as the next chapter in the story and took that bit that he didn't like, and that became the third verse, and we were done in 90 minutes. But the whole idea was to say, I'm invested. You don't, you know, this is really hard work, but I'm not letting go because we belong together. Did you envision it as like, you know, her presentation of it is so, you know, it's so epic and so, you know, bam. No, we d- we know, did is it that more, how you imagined no, it? No, we did it more restrained. We did it closer to how the way I do it every night, which is more, more of like a folk song. Yeah, yeah. It's got some energy to it, but she made it pretty huge. Yeah. Yet for her, she had just come off love as a battlefield. Yeah. Which means for her, everybody's going, oh, she's softer now. It's the ballad. Because they were using a, we are strong, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah. So, but there was no way to predict the timing. Um, everybody was pitching her a new love as a battlefield. And um, and we didn't do that. So we, we just, well, we didn't really, the publisher, Tom Sturgis, pitched it to her. We didn't sit there and think, Pat Benatar. I just wanted to get through the day. Yeah. My friendship with Eric was rekindled after two months of not speaking. We started getting together weekly to write. And I figured, okay, I feel a little better. I'll just keep this as a hobby. And five months between when we wrote it and when Sturgis called and said, you got, you're going to get a Pat Benatar cut, probably first single. <laughs> and it came out, you know, we, we wrote it in September of 83. We got the call in February of 84 and it came out in October. So 13 months after we wrote it. And... It was like move over because this is huge. And yeah, I, it was I huge. I couldn't believe what was happening. What songs did you have a hand in for the Bangles? Two songs on their final album. One written with Susanna Hoffs called I'll Set You Free. Another one written with Michael Steele, the bass player, who I had coincidentally, and this is part of where, you know, I had worked with her at Tower Records. I had met her in a- Susanna Hoff. Uh, no, no. Uh, 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 Susanna Hoffs was Eric Lowen's wife's high school best friend. And we're all hanging out New Year's okay. Eve going <laughs> into 86, watching the Bangles on Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. And she, we're watching her on TV because that was taped. And she's right there. And she says, we should write together. Okay. <laughs> and we wrote that. Michael Steele, we called her Mickey, had worked with me at Tower Records like four or five years, more than five years before, quite a few years before. I had met her at a bar and we got to chatting. My best friend and I saw these two girls and we said, well, let's chat them up. And she and I both had worked at record stores and she wanted to move to LA. I said, well, we need people. So I told the manager of the store about her and she got a job at Tower Records. And, you know, she said, yeah, I I play bass. I'd been the bass player in The Runaways, but I left before they put the record out because Kim Fowley hit on me and I was 16. And so all this is to say that she was an old friend when we were working with Susanna. She said, well, let's do something. So she and I and Eric and a guy named David White I went to college with, who was her best friend, and I had introduced them, all wrote this song called Something to Believe In that was on the Everything album. Everything, the album was named after a song called Everything I Wanted, that Sue and I and Eric had written, but they left it off the album. But they named the album after it because they put a Billy Steinberg song on. Billy had two songs on the record, had three songs on the record. We had each written three songs, and that third slot went to him and Tom Kelly instead of us. 
Um, as I briefly mentioned, you put out 13 records with Eric. Right. Um, why did that end? And, and what got, was it like striking out on your own? Although it sounds like he'd done so many other things, it was probably not. Well, it was, I still wanted to do it. Eric and I had survived doing well at radio and then not, doing decently at, re, re, at retail and then not. Um, and the diminution of our audience from seven or 800 people a night to about 200, 300. And so he said, we can go on forever. And he got Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And in 2004, was diagnosed with ALS. And so we just figured, well, you probably have a year. And he said, well, then let's go great guns. Let's go till the wheels fall off. And he got, we got four and a half years on the road before he was too sick to, to proceed. And he wow. got eight years of life after his diagnosis. And, you know, my, our agent said at the beginning of 07, you got to start going out there now. Well, we thought Eric would be done by the beginning of 07, and he wasn't done till the middle of 09. So he lasted a long time. I toured both entities. I would stay out of our prime markets and go to secondary markets and get the weirdness and the awkwardness and the embarrassment out of my system while I went out there and decided to see what it was like as a solo. And it was really, really weird at first. And I wasn't even sure I liked it. But I kept going, and I did learn to, to love it and developed it into something that has now been – I've been solo now 15 years, and I really enjoy it. I'm still touring because I like it. And you put out four records as a solo? I put out um, two records of original material, a record with James Lee Stanley of Led Zeppelin covers completely reinvented, and a live album. So I put out four records, um, but two studio albums of brand new material, and the most recent came out in 2022. Uh, are you on a tour now, or did you just come down to play ACMA? No, I'm, I'm, I'm on a tour. I started the tour with some dates in the um, Mid-Atlantic. Then I came down to the 30A Festival on the Florida Panhandle. And then Atlanta and three three Florida shows. I'm done with this leg. I've got to drive home because I have to load my car with stuff for the Folk Alliance Conference. And I go back out for shows in the upper Midwest starting February 8th, Minneapolis, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, two shows, three shows in Chicago, Milwaukee, show in Des Moines, and then down to Kansas City for the week-long Folk Alliance Conference. Then I go home again, and then I've got March off. Hmm. Middle of April, I go back out for six weeks. What do you listen to on the road? Lately, podcasts and audiobooks. I don't listen to that much music on the road because it kind of, first of all, it lulls me to sleep and I'm, I'm in yeah. danger of going off the a road. A good podcast can just drive you all day oh, long. Well, you're hanging on every word. And actually, the thing that I do, thank God that I, I can rewind them, go, wait, what, what, what did exactly. he just say? Right on Boom. your steering wheel. You can just go boop, boop, and it'll back it up, or at least on my relatively new car. Yeah. Um, and, but mo lately, mostly audiobooks. We're listening to uh, Philip Norman's biography of George Harrison right now. Hmm. I did the Keith Richards biography. I've done, ooh, God, Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, read by him and riveting. Um, a book called Not in Our Lifetime that is uh, Anthony Summers' uh, analysis of the Kennedy assassination, which is my era. Um, song called Sapiens about how humans became human. Hmm. And, you know, so it's kind of a mix. Isn't it great we live in such a great world where you could just learn stuff? You could just, oh, it's man. just all there if you want to learn stuff. If you're, not, if you're not learning stuff, you're not trying, people. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think I need to start a, a support group called Wikipedia Rabbit Hole because <laughs> I will go down the Wikipedia Rabbit Hole hmm. and find out about stuff. Um, uh, what, do you sit down to write a song or like will you ever be driving around listening to a podcast and then suddenly be like, oh, and then hit pause and then like pull up your phone and then like email yourself a line or something? Both. 
I mean, sometimes when I sit down to write a song, usually what comes out is music, and then I got to figure out what lyrics. When I'm driving around or in a room, an idea will come and I'll pop it into my phone and then go back to it. And it's usually either a, a phrase of lyrics or a little melodic passage. When I'm sitting down, it'll be a guitar lick or a pr- particular progression that feels good. And then I just start making stuff up. You know, the whole scrambled eggs, uh, you know, with Paul McCartney doing yesterday, it's, is the way it works. You just make up nonsense until it's like, ooh, I can hang my hat on that. Uh-huh. And then you go back and you start, you know, massaging it and tweaking it and making it fit. Oh, this is great. We got to do your second song, though. <laughs> um, this is uh, the Elton John song. Well, you know, witness young love yet again. Uh, I was in my third year at UCLA and um, a, a flag carrier from the marching band, and I was in the marching band. Flag carrier from the marching band was adorable. Carolyn Kerncamp. Oh, man. And I had a crush on her. And I took a leap and said, would you like to go to a movie? And she said, yes. And I'm going, wow. And she was sweet and, and tiny because I'm not very tall myself. And, and we went to see this film I had heard about, didn't know anything about it, called Friends. And not, not the TV show of the same name. It had a score, a song score by Elton John. Now, at this point in time, because I think it was 1971. I'm not 100% positive. 69 to 70, 70 to 71. Should have been September-ish of 1971. And he had just put the first album out, what we call the first album, which really was his second, the one with your song. And, and I had been a big fan of the second album, which was Tumbleweed Connection with Burn Down the Mission and My Father's Gun and Where To Now, St. Peter. And here was this movie called Friends, that he had done the song score to. The basic story of the movie is two very young kids, and I mean, they're like 14, they might even be 12, end up stranded, if you will, in this French chalet, and these these friends become lovers. She even, the girl even becomes pregnant. Um, but the song is talking about how young lovers start as friends. And I hear the song, and I look to my right, and I fell in love. Carolyn and I were together for two years after that. Um, we split when I start. I just started getting interested in other stuff, and I was developing as a person in a way that I wanted to be this rocker, and so I was doing that. And she was a more, a little more sedate, which is another way of saying responsible <laughs> and grounded. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a tough breakup, um, cause I really cared for her. We didn't talk for a while and we got back in touch. She's one of my dearest friends to this day. She's been married 40 years to the same guy who's a wonderful friend of mine. I sang at her eldest daughter's wedding. And so we're 50 years down the road and we're friends. Um, and we, and we talk because I was dreaming of this career that I wound up getting. So to sing at her daughter's wedding when I had been with her when I was starting to do this stuff. Um, But that will take me back to the movie theater in Westwood Village and looking at her and going, this is it. And it was almost like the song was, had drawn us into that vibe. Ain't it funny how young lovers start as friends. Hmm. And you were both true to yourselves, which made it not work then, but made it work. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Hope the day will be a lighter highway because friends are found on every road. Can you ever think of any better way for the lost and weary traveler to go? Making friends for the world to see. Let the people know you got what you need. With a friend at hand, you can see the light. When your friends are there, everything's all right. Uh, this is Dan Navarro's second song on Three Song Stories today. This is Friends by Elton John from his 1971 album, The Country Bears. And one of the dominant instruments in there is a French horn, and I played French horn, so that song really got under my skin. Were you aware of that as you were listening to it Absolutely aware of it. I mean, musically, because I was trained, music has never been wallpaper. It can't. That's one of the other reasons why I don't listen to music a lot on the road. It's work. Good work. Wonderful work. But it's... I. Listen to, analyze, dissect, absorb, ingest every morsel of it. It's not something I do casually very well. Um, I do it actively, wonderfully, and I can listen actively, but I'm, I'm engaged. And so from that standpoint, listening to it and hearing, first of all, this was also, this was pre-Captain Fantastic for Elton. He was still pretty mellow, really soulful. He hadn't gotten too outrageous and not that the outrageous part was bad but he was he was a massive star by then he was still on his way up and still doing soulful stuff and here was this beautiful beautiful song i quoted a line earlier that was from a different song in the film uh, ain't it funny how young lovers start as friends and that is again what you know it was the entire soundtrack that appealed to me and it wasn't readily available it never. I don't think it really figures in his discography to very many people who think that he pretty much went straight from Tumbleweed Connection to Madman Across the Water. Yeah, I which said, I I'd also never heard up. this song. Yeah. Right, and it's a beauty because it's simple and gentle, and he's not blasting. But in the specific brief, I remember watching the movie and turning to my right and looking at her, and I went, "You're sunk. That's it." If she likes you, you've got you've got to stay. And I did, and I adored her. Um, and you know, she may listen to this, so I have to say flat out as as the years went on, I started getting uh, tempted into other things, and I did develop a, a, a deep affection for somebody else who was very influential on me as a person. Uh, I'm not friends with that person. That person opened my head up and changed my life a lot, especially musically, but it was not it was tumultuous. And not a healthy relationship. Hmm. And I'm grateful that Carolyn um, has deigned us worthy of, of remaining friends all these years. What song did you sing at her daughter's wedding? Uh, I sang Not Like You from my second album from Broken Moon. And, uh, and I sang that at my mother's funeral. I've sung it at other weddings. Um, it's, it's, it's a song of devotion that actually works in both a, a reverent and a hopeful manner. There's a, a a bridge that I took out at my mom's funeral, and I've sung it at other funerals because it's about, you know, uh, nothing. Uh, the 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 wisdom of the ages cannot pull me through. Not like you, and there is a whole line in it about if you should ever have to leave, I'll be stronger than I ever believed because you've shown me how. It's about an influence of somebody on somebody. I sang that. Um, interestingly, about friends, I've sung that. I sang that at my sister's wedding, my, my elder of the two sisters' first marriage. Uh, I sang it at her wedding, and I sang it with this guy, Dan Carlson, that I told you about, who was my first duo partner. 
only in December he opened for me, and I realized, dude, we've been friends for 50 years. Mm. So I pulled friends out and sang it in public for the first time since the very early 70s because he was in the room. I had to had to go drill the, the second verse of lyrics and put them up on my phone. Uh, but I sang the song then. So there's a significance to the fact that it was a pretty instrumental song in, in my development as, a, as an artist, as a person, as a friend. And, but it takes me back to, that, to multiple moments, but particularly falling in love. So as I started reading up on you, Dan, it's like the, the, the catchphrase in the infomercial. But wait, there's more. Uh, so yeah. now we have to talk about voice acting and voice yep. work. How did that begin? Because you've done a bunch. We'll, we'll highlight some. It started pretty organically. Um, you know, I, I, there are a whole series of things, and this is all going to end up, frankly, in the memoir, but also it ends up in my workshops. Um, I had, you know, become a songwriter, and it was, the royalties had diminished to the point where I couldn't live on only them. And other cuts had happened, but they weren't hits. They were on hit albums. So I had a decent income, but it's starting to dip below livable levels. And I, I said, I need something else. And coincidentally, a friend from college who I was in the Glee Club with said, do you want to come to my house and sing on a jingle for 100 bucks, 30 miles each way? Sure. I'm all over it because that's part of my mantra. The only answer is yes. And I met a woman on the session who, who uh, was contracting Spanish language vocal work. And I speak Spanish. Um, so I went and did it. Um, she said, have you got a demo? A month later, she called me up and said, get square with, with AFTRA, the union. Great. What's that cost? 600 bucks. Great. What am I going to make on this session? 250. <laughs> All right. That'll work. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was 350 down, but residuals and, and further work. So I became a mainstay in the Spanish language vocal community in 1988 at 36 years old. <laughs> and that means, which means at 35, I wasn't doing that work. I was a pro songwriter. Somebody that I'd done jingles for, uh, for McDonald's and other products, called me up and I did a session, 1994, you know, some six years after I started doing these, this jingle work. And I went and going, so what am I singing? And he goes, actually, it's a voiceover. We think we'd like you to do that. We just think your voice would be good. And overnight, I became the Spanish language voice of Southern California Toyota dealers. So I'm doing three commercials every three weeks. And, and it's, you know, bolstering the coffers and I'm picking up experience and doing things. There was a woman that I dated who was a casting director and we would talk about that part of the business. Uh, we did not make the cut, but we stayed friends. And she called me one day and said, I've got this gig and I think you'd be great for it. Um, it's doing background noise voices, ADR it's called. It's also called looping and walla. Automated dialogue replacement where if there's a crowd scene, you're doing the crowd noises. If there are two parking attendants in the background of, an, of you know, two characters talking and one guy comes up and gives the keys to the other guy, I would be the guy that was, you know, I'm a, or here are the keys. And to give it reality because yeah. in, in the film, those guys aren't talking. Right. I mean, they might way, be talking, but nobody's recording it. Well, no, on purpose. <laughs> yeah, and they're yeah. actually told, move your lips. Don't right. say anything because yeah, yeah. we want a clean production sound. When you're seeing a restaurant scene, the people in the restaurant are not speaking. Uh -huh. They're pretending to speak, and those sounds get added. So I started doing that work, and it just started. This, She said, I've got this series. doesn't pay as well as the others, but it's still union. 
animated series. It's not 600 bucks a day with residuals. It's 99 bucks a show. It's, a le- it's legal. It's through the union. What do you think? And I'm not the guy who goes, no, I'm not doing it. It pays too little. So I did it. And it turned into 26 episodes. And then they canceled the show. Okay. That's the way it goes. Two years later, they brought back the show. So Linda Lamontine calls me up and says, you want to come back? I went, heck yeah. And that was Family Guy. And since then, I've done 22 years on Family Guy, 250 episodes of the 500 that they've made. Because I'm on the road, so I miss them. Then they come up with American Dad, and I ended up doing 210 episodes of American Dad. And then they did the Cleveland show, and I did 50 of the 100 episodes of that before that show got canceled. And once you start picking that up, lately I've done Invincible for Amazon Prime, uh, The Boys Diabolical for Amazon Prime, Pantheon, you know, Ultra City Smiths, did a terrible show for Nickelodeon called Glenn Martin DDS, was a claymation show with Kevin Nealon and Catherine O'Hara. And you're just looking at picture doing the sounds. Um, that led to other things and other things. I've done characters on animated features because um, concurrently I was singing in animated features. You sang a songs in Encanto. I sang backups. I love that movie. I sang backups <laughs> on We Don't Talk About Bruno. And I wasn't, you know, we didn't really know what it was. That was the first gig after COVID. So we're in these isolated areas. Lin-Manuel Miranda never showed his face. If he was there, he was in the booth. Um, and we're singing the backup parts. So I'm sitting there going, oh, 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 we don't talk about Bruno. Oh, oh. I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And the crazy thing, and this is what the producers know about me. I was on the road. And they said, we've got this gig on Wednesday. I'm going, I have a day off. I'm in Chicago. Hell with it. I'm coming. And I paid for an airfare. Cost me 500 bucks to fly home to make 1200 bucks. But producers know I'll show up. The residual stream was huge. Never mind that I had no idea it was going to be a number one single. The only time in my whole career I've sung on a number one record. So I just, my thing is, I'm just going to go for it. You mentioned American Dad, Richard, who co-creator of the show. When when I nudged him on text this morning to show him what the things you do, he just simply replied, please tell him that the cilantro song is the perfect amount of silly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, well, I've got people, man, who come up to me, oh, wow, you wrote We Belong, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, wow, Lone and Navarro Records, that's really cool. Wait a minute, you're cilantro? Oh, God, dude, this dude's cilantro. Oh, my God. Dude, sing him El perro, el perro. This cat, this cat. It's wild. The only other thing that's ever hit that was somebody I met who knew my work, and I he showed me an album cover, and I went, this looks like the logo for Fallout 4, the video game. I was two characters. Dude, you're Jacob Orton. Oh, man, I killed you, dude. You were bad. And I was two characters, Jacob Orton and and um, I can't remember. Oh, God. I've I, 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 Dean Volkert and Jacob Orton in Fallout 4. I gave up video games in the mid-90s because I was too into it. And it was about a year and a half ago that one of my best friends since childhood kept pestering me. He's like, dude, there's this horse game. You got to play this horse game with me. We could play online. We could ride horses. We can go fishing. We could play poker. Come on, man. And I was like, okay. So I bought a used Xbox One and am totally hooked on Red Dead Redemption 2. And yep. so you did like townsfolk. I did t- 
townsfolk. You can't not a specific character. No, but no, no. But yeah, but I heard you somewhere. Somewhere. Well, and the other thing about it is what they do because I have no idea what the visual is. They put a headset on me with a light and a camera. Taking my facial reactions as I'm as I'm sitting there. So Get out motion, of my way. So some motion capture goes into it. Some motion into capture the face. goes into it, exactly. And you know, my thing is I'm just willing. I'll say yes before I even know what something is. There's a I mean, I I sang a vocal in Happy Feet that they that they used. Two others that were backing parts that they used. But I did a guide vocal on my way in Spanish so that Robin Williams could learn the song. And the the guy kind of goes, well, give me a little vocal flourish to kind of kick it off. And I made that up. Well, he couldn't cop it. So they left that in the movie. And it's just kind of, because I've done a lot of Gypsy Kings cops. And it's the whole thing is about if you can conceive of it and then make your vocal cords fit, go for it. Give it a try. And it's really fun. And sometimes it's really hard. The crazy thing on Happy Feet was I had a vocal problem, and I'd lost my voice a week before. So I'm taking prednisolone Z-Pak steroids that brought it back except for a little hole in the middle. And I'm singing, and I get there, and I don't know what it is, and I should have said I have to cancel the session. But I just went, just do it. And and they said, well, this Gypsy King's. Ish, and I went, great. I could gruff my way through the problem. I'm getting ready. To, like, we did it in 15 minutes. I'm getting ready to leave. And they go, you know, it's John Powell. Said, Dan, could, could you try one clean? Went, sure. The vocal hole showed up. It took me 40 minutes to get the thing I had just done in 15 with a smooth voice. And I had to really bear down over the little hole. And I got it. And they used the gruff one. And they didn't use it anyway. It was just to teach him the song. All this is to say, give it a shot. Let's try. Why not? Give me an at-bat. I'm going to swing away. And I discover things I don't, don't necessarily know how to do, and they end up happening. And you end up with a web page where you have to scroll for like two minutes like to go <laughs> through all the stuff you've done. <laughs> well, I re- man, I remember a point in around 1987 I go, man, I just want to sing on a record just once because Lone and Navarro wasn't recording. I hadn't done backups on anything, and I wasn't doing the voice work yet. I was just a, a songwriter who worked with the Bangles and did this and did that, and that was it. This other aspect to my career, first of all, to think of it as a career was ludicrous. I figured if I'm going to do this a couple times and it's going to vaporize, and that was 35 years ago. Hmm. And I still, I managed to work, some years are better than others. Uh, I haven't done a movie since Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which I did the session in July of 22. So it's been a year and a half since I've sung in a movie. Okay. The last voice thing I did was for Invincible on what's coming next season. That was in. Really? Oh, man. That's a big one. (laughs) So I'm sorry. Jared emerges. Hey, Jared. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I really like Invincible a lot. And I uh, recently found out. That Peter Cullen is going to be in it, and man, do I love Peter Cullen! So uh, that's that's just really cool. It's pretty wild, and I mean, you know, the guy working with Simon, he's on a patch from Toronto, um, and I had done the boys diabolical. Really? Uh, oh, with, that's cool. With with them, and they were really cool about it. Um, Pantheon was a little bit different because Pantheon they ended up just dumping the whole second season, even though they did it, and it's in the can. I got paid for it, but it's never going to run. 
That's it. It's it's gone unless they decide to release them on some kind of file. You know, it's just weird. I'm lucky. Linda LaMontagne still calls me uh, to do work. Um, and I just figure I'm just going to run this till the clock, till I run out of gas. You know, I mean, I've earned pensions that I haven't even drawn yet. Mm. So the whole thing is I just swing away and I keep trying. Is there a role or a character that you've been wanting to or like a series you want to lend your voice to that you haven't so far? Like a dream role type well, of Well, yeah, there, there, there kind of is. I mean, I when Gilbert Gottfried died, I called oh, my wow. agent and said, I want to do Aflac. <laughs> <laughs> can I do that? I can go in and say Aflac 25 times in 10 minutes here, and I'll here, make a living. Let's pretend like we're doing a session here. Give us uh, give us Aflac three different ways. Go. Aflac. 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 <laughs> I want the third one to be there. Oh, too. That's so good. I want the, I want there to be a new duck. <laughs> that would be a swan. Yeah, there you go. Got a duck. If you're listening to Aflac and a swan. <laughs> um, let's do your third song. Third song. I wanted to sing. I knew I wanted to sing and I knew I could. I was a dork. So I auditioned for a band that two friends of mine had. And I sang Light My Fire by the Doors, and I nailed it, and I knew it. And they go, yeah, you're not getting the gig. We're going to give it to Eddie instead. And because I wasn't cool. I was a complete dorkathon. I go off to college, and I didn't sing the first year. And, um, but I knew that I could. The first opportunity I had to sing in public was at church, at mass. I'm Catholic. And it was the folk mass era. I'm a senior in high school in 1969, and the Young Bloods put out Get Together. Now, it had been released a couple years before, but it hit two years later. And I'm inside this thing and just going, this is so good. And we went to the priest going, can we sing Get Together at mass? It's a, it's a message of, of togetherness. And he goes, yeah, let's do that. So weirdly... Tony and Eddie from the band that turned me down. Tony played guitar. Eddie played upright bass. They stole a bass from school. And we would sit at the pulpit where there was this microphone and speakers in the ceiling in a giant church. I mean, you know, I grew up in a small town, but the Catholic church is enormous because it's Latinos, man. I mean, we're culturally Catholic whether we go to Mass or not. And by the way, it was really funny to see the Knights of Columbus would do their Saturday, Sunday morning menudo breakfast because it's all the dads who had been out drunk the night before wanting to work off the, the hangover. Well, I, so I start singing Get Together. And that's the first time I heard myself on mic, first time I sang in public. And that the feeling of when I hear that song, I'm back in that church giving it a go, hearing my voice through the speakers and going, I can do this. Mm. I swear to God, I can do this. I didn't do it my first year of college because the university was three times the size of my hometown. I figured there's no way I'm good enough. Three times the size of my hometown? Somebody heard me at the end of freshman year and said, dude, you need to go audition for the men's glee club. So I went and auditioned. At the end of the year, I got in and... That became my main thing. I was I was a soloist. I was one of the top vocalists in the group. That's when I started getting, I need to buy a guitar. I need to write songs. I need to put it out there. 
and uh, you know with no real reference of how do I do this I just kept pushing and trying and I pulled it off and I'm not saying it like it was that easy my first public gig in college was um, my last year of college I went to a troubadour hoot night at the famous troubadour and sang four songs and the place was packed with my friends and I'm going yeah and there were my songs that I'd written I won a songwriting contest my last year at UCLA. I mean, it was starting to kind of get some gravitas. But at the time, you know, Glee Club was where it happened. But it wasn't until I sang at the church as a senior. Love is but a song we sing. Fear is the way we die. You can make mountains sing or make the angels cry. Uh, Know the bird lives on the wing. You may not know why. Come on, people, now smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. I love this song. Were you nervous? Oh, God, yes. Did you feel like you could, you know, you could sing and practice and then you get up there and suddenly you're not breathing as well and you can't really get there? Did you get there? It, it came out from the first note. Um, I have those feelings before every show. I've done 5,000 shows and I have that feeling before I don't, I'm going to open my mouth and nothing's going to come out. And in the first four or five notes, it's like, okay, we're good. And there have been shows where the first four or five songs I go, oh, I am skating. I am pressing. This is not really very good. And that's when you you fall back on your training and your experience and you get through the moment. And usually when that happens, and it's happened more than I care to admit, two to four songs in, you go, okay, I'm good. I got there. Maybe I wasn't warmed up enough or I wasn't fine in the groove. And then you go, okay, I'm good. Rarely has there been a show where the whole show it's like that. Happened once or twice. And I've done shows where I'm too hoarse to sing. And that's where you bear down and you you force the notes. But yeah, I was scared to death. Mm. But I opened my mouth. Love is but a song we sing in the giant speakers in the ceiling. I'm going, oh, we're good. We're done. And I saw what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I just didn't think it would happen. Well, let's listen to it. Imagining that. This is Dan Navarro's third and final song, Get Together, performed by the Young Bloods, released in 1967. Had been put out by Chet Powers before that, though. Uh, this is Three Song Stories. I still have people sending me notes on Facebook going, you know, I'm, I'm from Calexico, and I remember when you used to sing that at church. Hmm. And that was 1969. I went off to college in September, and... Uh, Never really went back. I went back for my first two summers. I skipped my third summer because I had this girlfriend, Carolyn, and I decided not to leave town. Um, and then went back for my fourth year, and then after that, I never went, really never went back again except for reunions. But people still remember, which is remarkable to me. Is that a song that you would play with a guitar, like at an ACMA kind of gig? You know, I don't think I've put it in a show ever, but I would. Hmm. I mean, it is the kind of thing that I would do because I do kind of reach back once in a while and pull out a cover of, of something that mattered to me like that. And especially when it's, it's unexpected. That's the idea. Hmm. I mean, I may, it's in my head now, so I may have to do it tonight. Um, you know, the funny thing about it, too, is that um, when I started making records, I did a triple uh, music confab. Actually, no, it was a Gavin Report convention in 1994, the same convention where I met my future wife, who's now my ex-wife, but still my dear friend. And Jesse Colin Young from the Young Bloods comes up to me and goes, hey, man, I really love your stuff. 
and I wanted a plot. You're Jesse. Go- I, I mean, I, 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 dude, Get Together was the first song I ever sang in public. Oh, my God. I can't believe how cool it is to meet you. And I was beside myself. And he couldn't have been nicer. There was an event in Los Angeles last year. And he was presenting. And I was friends with the people putting the event on at the Grammy Museum. And I um, went up on stage after the show. And I went, hey, man. I guess because back in 1994, I met you at this, and he he walked away from me like he owed me money. It was like, you know, he had no recollection and no interest and no offense to him intended. I was some dude reminding him of a one-off incident from 30 years before. Yeah. But it was kind of amusing. At the time, he couldn't have been nicer. And, and you know, I mean, I had a record climb in the charts, and, and so I get it. But I, just, I can't believe I get to actually meet you. Um, I have a sidebar before we get to the speed round. <clears throat> I'm a big nerd. I've been following the world of AI since GPT-2. Mm-hmm. Um, we've come, they've come a really long way in terms of being able to generate voice. As a voice person, what's the ground truth from your perspective as far as threat to that, those kinds of jobs? Well, it's, it's especially for voice, it's a massive threat. I don't believe AI is the devil, but I was on the and I'm still on the standing committee, on the TV theatrical negotiating committee from, for SAG-AFTRA, where one of the biggest issues was AI. Mm-hmm. In particular, use of voice without consent. And actors were legitimately, are legitimately afraid that they'll get scanned visually or vocally and never work again. We were successful in getting consent, informed consent, which means not only do you consent to being scanned, you got to know how they're going to use it. You have to consent to how they use it. And if you don't consent, they can't use it. And it's only usable on the project for which you're hired and you have to be paid like you did it in person. The idea of scanning you once and then using you in 20 scenes, if they do that, it's only the film you're in for that and you get paid for 20 scenes. So what it's saving them is energy. It's saving them setting up new shoots, but it's not going to save them a fortune. And right now it's more expensive. Um, I testified before House Judiciary uh, in May. I did a panel at South by Southwest last March. I've been interviewed by a lot of different entities because my premise is really simple. The three C's, consent, credit, compensation. You do it without consent. You use my voice without consent. Not all states have a right of publicity law that protects an actor's voice or image. California does. New York does. But it's not a federal law. Copyright is a little bit different. Um, Some of it they're going to be able to do legitimately. And what I mean by that, I do ADR. This is, you know, looping. They can do that without me. Um, I have done voice match. I've done two movies sounding like Javier Bardem. I kind of practice it up, and I have to learn how to adjust my voice. To, I have to adjust my voice to sound like him. And they could get him to a consent to them cloning his voice. And this will also, I've done dubbing from foreign languages into English. They will get the original voice, clone it, allow it, manipulate it so that it can speak foreign languages. Which is they, all achievable. Achievable, yes. and they can make the picture, make the lips move so you don't look like a Japanese Godzilla picture. Yeah. And it would be foolish of me to say you can't do that to protect my job when the product that they create will be better. 
it will be the original actor's voice and, and the lips will move in sync with the text. So AI is not the devil. It's about the protections. Theoretically, if we take the Javier Bardem kind of thing, he's consented and he gets paid. We're good. Um, but as far as voiceovers, you know, there's a huge jeopardy, especially if they use stuff that is um, what we call synthetic performers. I was going to say, like created from whole cloth, something Correct. that you're not, you're not, there's no motion capture, there's no vocal mimicry. It's just a new person with a new voice that, well, and, that looks like the what you want it to look like. And if it's generative AI that comes from something like a chat GPT or a GPT-4. It's been trained on real people somewhere. Been, right. And the <laughs> whole idea is that we've got the studios to admit who they've trained on huh. and include you in so the soup. Through line back to Correct. provenance. Basically. Now, the issue, the real issue is going to be people that aren't signatory to the union contracts, people working non-union, and it's going to be the jungle for a while. And enforcing it or policing it's going to be whack-a-mole. That's just the reality. The songwriter rights aspect of it, I mean, this thing they did last year with Drake and The Weeknd singing a rap tune, they didn't get permission. Universal Music shut them down and they took it down. But this is going to continue. I, when I did one of my dubbing dates, the engineer found out I was a musician. He goes, dude, I, I write songs. You got to hear this. I got John and Paul to sing my song. And he plays it. It's Beatles yeah. singing his song. Yeah. And that's Yoko's not going to dig that. You know, on Weekend Edition Saturday this morning, there was a whole story about the, quote, new George Carlin special, which they've, oh, wow. it's fully generated from like all his voice and concerts and everything. But they like they were talking to his daughter saying that this isn't right, meaning they must not have gotten permission. But it's a new George Carlin special. And if they don't get permission, that's got to be actionable you, any yeah, more than think. any more than than if you've got a, a device on your phone, an app that can scan my doorknob and create a new house key. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. And, you know, some people go, hey, man, I'm never going to use the key. I just want to know that I can do it. Yeah, still, that's my house key. Hmm. You the can't... latest. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to bring up that the latest Beatles song, uh, which is, I think is the final Beatles song, yep. too, uh, also used AI for um, the music and the voices, too. And what's interesting about that, too, is I think that common perception is that they used it to clean up John's voice from the cassette. I believe, I don't have evidence, but it's my belief that they used AI to clone John's voice to create such a clean version that they didn't have to remove anything from. They simply could use AI. And that's AI. just sort of lost in the sauce, if correct, you will. Correct, correct. Well, I mean, the original stuff that was married to his voice in the cassette is gone completely because I think they reproduced it. And it's, it's an average song. It still is good to hear it. And all of that. But see, all of that was done with permission, consent, authorization. And that's the element for me. Somebody said, well, maybe AI can be good for you. Well, I, yeah. I could get a brand new song and train generative AI on Lowen and Navarro records, especially where Eric sang lead, and put out a brand new Lowen and Navarro song using Eric's voice generated by AI. I'd get the permission of his family. I'd be into it just to see how good it could be. You could even have, you know, have it come up with new songs based on the the 70 songs you've released. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the point. If it's there's a benefit to it with permission, with uh. consent, with authorization. The idea that somebody's intellectual property or their countenance is up for grabs because they're out there, I don't buy that. Enforcing it's going to be hard. Yeah. Because the people that are going to do it 
that create the problems are the ones who don't get authorization. Yeah. And then you got to find them. And I think, you know, right now the New York Times is suing. Um, I'm sure that record companies will start suing. And this is going to clog up the courts for a while mm. until the Supreme Court. And I think it will go to the Supreme Court eventually rules on just what can you do? Because the, I'm doing a panel next Wednesday in New York City. I'm driving home, stopping in Austin, parking the car, flying into Manhattan, coming back for the IEEE, which is an engineering technical group, over at Cooper Union to talk about the ethics and the legality of AI. Hmm. And there's a graphic, a digital artist on it. There's me. Um, I can't remember one of the other people I think is an author and and a, a, program, a programmer. And the programmer's saying, to me, this is easy. This is all fair use. To me, it's not fair use. Fair use is satire, parody, um, education with limits. If I'm in college and I need a passage from a book to be able to quote it, I can Xerox three or four pages. I can't Xerox a whole book. Yeah. And so it's – and people say, well, nobody's making any money on it. That is – fair use has nothing to do with commerciality. Has everything to do with the public good, education, and certain limited instances. And I'm not an expert on fair use, although I'm pretty well versed in copyright, being a songwriter. But I'm going to get better versed on it. And it's, it's there's still some rulings to come that's going to determine what, what makes sense and what doesn't. It's like any tool: use it use it ethically, and it's a boon to, to humankind. Use it unethically, and you're stealing people. Problem is, is that old saying like a lie can make it halfway around the world before the truth can Absolutely put its right. boots on. You know, if everybody, you know, you can project the future. I mean, if if everybody can do stuff that Hollywood couldn't do five years ago in a few years, and they can put it on the internet, and they can flood the internet, and maybe there's even AI entities that are making it and putting it on the internet. Oh, it's happening now. You know, I mean, uh, it's the by the way, the George Carlin special I looked it up. It's called "I'm Glad I'm Dead." Oh my God. I've got, I mean, I got to know more. It's an hour I'm, long. I just pulled it up. It's on YouTube. It's an hour long George Carlin special on YouTube. That was wow. So what, I, days what I want to know is, is it authorized? Yeah. Um, where's it going to be? You know, the, the, the elements of that there, it's, it's all the wild, wild west. Yeah. And it's, and it's going to get even, even freakier. I mean, the Carlin special brings things up. You know, what's going to happen with my own music? Um, I will say one thing. Um, I'm part of something called the Human Artistry Campaign that believes that artistry is human. And I talked to a different programmer once who was proud of the fact she was a very nice person. I don't mean to, to um, malign her. She says, you know, we can do snark now. I went, great. Can you do sarcasm? And she went, <laughs> not yet. Because sarcasm, you think about it, an honest statement that means the opposite of what you intend. And can an AI engine d discern that? Can it write the, a sad, sad song that makes you happy? And it's those inverse relationships, those contradictions that makes something human. And so from the, the, the challenge for me, I got to get better at my job. And I'm not going to deny that. When it starts raising the bar, I have to get better at my job. I actually asked ChatGPT to create a lower Navarro lyric. It was dreadful. Yeah. It was really horrible. By the numbers, nothing special about it. Kind of figured out, okay, well, they're a harmony duo, so it threw the word harmony in and persistence. And I'm going, this is, I wouldn't write this on a bad day. Yeah. But 
it's going to get better. The chat GPT that public has access to, though, is like a like a 0.5 megapixel digital camera. Right. Where, you know, where Hollywood is, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Like, like we are still just in the beep, boop, boop version of this. Pong. <laughs> so, this is Pong. Yeah, yeah, this is Pong compared to whatever it's going to be. Um, my, my first video game was in television. Yeah. I think it was one bit, and I thought it was great, and it's, you know... Not compared to now. We should start a podcast, Dan. We talk about AI, nerd out. Um, <laughs> it is time for your speed round, though. You ready? All right. I actually don't know what the speed round is, so it's going to be fun. Well, it's just a speed round. Do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share? No. I've had two that, that one that stuck more than the, uh, for, between about 1978 and about 1989, I was known as Sal. And there are still, the Bengals still call me Sal. Um, it was a nickname given to me by a couple of musicians from San Francisco who thought I'd looked like Sal Valentino of the Bo Brummels. The nickname stuck to the point where I adopted it. My first publishing company was called Sal Songs. Hmm. Um, when I started realizing that I was having a lot more fun being Dan, that I didn't need to be Sal anymore, um, and it was it coincided with when I started recording. Sal, I don't really. I've got some some you know Airsots nieces and nephews who still call me Uncle Sal. Do you do karaoke? Almost never. What would you do if you had to? Wichita lineman. And oh, that one, there you the go. The one time I did, I've done it twice. I did Rainy Night in Georgia once on a cruise ship, and nobody cared. And I'm going, don't you know who I think I am? But I did it for, I, I was doing negotiations for the commercials contract in 2000 in New York, and we went to a Japanese karaoke bar, Japanese restaurant karaoke bar. And they had, and I, 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 I had a, a, a crush on one of the members from New York. I was married. She was married. It never happened. But I had a crush on her. And I'm sitting there going, watch this. And there were three rather beautiful women on the committee. Oh, my God. Eileen Henry, Cynthia Vance, and Kim Sykes. And they're sitting at the bar. And the TV's up there. And I hit the I need you more than want you line, and all three of them simultaneously put their head down and banged it on the bar like, oh, my God. And so I just kind of, it was a little bit of a mic drop for me. Two times in my life I've done karaoke. If you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter the arena to? (laughs) Oh, instinctively what came out was going to fly now, so it would be Rocky. Um, as I think about it and try to get silly, we're going to go to their coming to take me away. Ha ha. What would your wrestler name be? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, a, I mean, that's going to take a little bit of time because there's a, there's a formula, but I'm not going to do the formula. Um, I think it would probably be, um, lumbering Jack. That's good. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. That cannot be a staple question, I'm Mike. I'm trying to work it in. I'm trying to work it. I, we, we, we had a chef. We had a, a, a celebrity chef on. I recorded yesterday, and we threw that one at him. Well, see, but, but part of it, too, because my dad owned a fast food restaurant when I was growing up. And my mom taught me how you can slice a weenie in two places so you can flatten it. That's a sandwich. <laughs> if, it's, if it's cylindrical, it ain't a sandwich. This is gonna. This is gonna become a normal question, Jared. It I don't clear, hate it. It clearly generates conversation. 
<laughs> Which By is the what way, we're the, here for. The bigger the weenie, the better it is. I mean, bratwurst, Italian uh, sausage, you know, the thick ones. But they you give sl- you more square inches in the But end. you slice on one side, then you slice on the opposite <laughs> side, and you flip the wings, and you got it's flat. What activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Wikipedia. Yeah. Wikipedia, next thing I know I'm late for something. Do you ever hear about the Wikipedia link trick? No. You can go to any Wikipedia page. If you click the first link in the page, within like seven or eight clicks, you will end up on the page for philosophy. Wow, I'm doing that. Yeah. Wikipedia is is in some ways one of my, my it's my favorite mind-numbing but informative pastime. And I learn stuff every time. You can make a whole show. Called, like I thought of this when you were talking, you guys were talking about it earlier, just called like Wiki Trivia. Yep. Just talk about all of the amounts of trivia you can collect on Wikipedia. Any songs you'll avoid listening to? Um, yes, but not, not anymore. Um, uh, when I would go through a breakup, who knows where the time goes? The Judy Collins version would lay me out. Uh, similarly, Eric Anderson, who was a friend of mine, the folky from the 60s, has a song called run, Time Run Like a Freight Train. Lay me out. Because these are, again, the songs of deep longing, and they, they would hit the nerve. And there might even have been a, por- a time when I would put the song on on purpose, unplug the phone, lock the door, and, and weep like a hound. Um, after Eric Lowen died, there was a song that was written for my mom's death. Um, and I hit the part of it that was important before she died. And Eric and I agreed we wouldn't finish it till she was gone. She died in 1994. And when he died, I couldn't listen to that song for two years. Mm. It was just too much. If you could broadcast a song into the head of all of humanity in a collective moment, what song would it be? Wow. Well, part of me says Wichita Lineman. I think the practical side of me says get together by the Youngbloods. Maybe it'll sink in. What album would you choose if you could only have one? That's hard. The Desert Island questions usually involve a top 10, but so I'm going to narrow it down a little bit and I'll make a choice. Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. It's my favorite piece of music of all. It's 25 minutes long. And there, that might have ended up on the Take Me Back to a Place in Time because that song, that piece of music was the moment when I decided and was led by a friend into changing my major to music and committing to this career when I was... 18 years old. Um, the other one is uh, The Cone Concerts by Keith Jarrett, mm. which also takes me back to opening the store in the morning at Tower Records. But it's it's improvised piano, and it, it takes me away. I think the real answer would be um, Ralph Vaughan Williams's Fifth Symphony, as recorded by either Neville Mariner or Adrian Bolt. One of the most sumptuous pieces of music I've ever heard. Did you know Phil Roy prior to Janet Thompson signing you both to Sony Music in 1990? No, that's how we met. <laughs> that is how we met. Janet thought we should write together. We became friends and never did write together. And I lost touch with him for a while. He had moved back to Philadelphia. Then he put out this album with a song called Melt that got right under my skin. And this was early days of the internet. I think it, was, it came out maybe 2002. Um, and I told him how much I liked it, but I pretty, basically lost touch with it. And he was making inroads as an artist, which was because he was a writer. And I was a writer. When we met, I had been an artist for a little while, but I was still making most of my living as a writer. 
we lost touch for a long time. And I found him only in the last couple of months and got in touch because I found out that he was living in Fort Myers. And I sent him a note going, dude, I'm coming to town in January. So we've rekindled our friendship. I'm staying with him and his wife this evening. Um, we're going to catch up. But one of the things he told me when we got back in touch is I saw you did Puss in Boots. The composer of that, Hector Pereira, he goes, man, that's my, that's my kid's godfather. <laughs> and so we've got these connections. Um, you know, and, and I think he's a richly, richly talented guy. And I'm envious of he got a Ray Charles cut, which would have been my dream cut and never happened. And, of course, Ray's gone. But he's had a Ray Charles cut, and that's a big deal to me. He's a very talented guy and a great guy. Um, I chose a different path. I chose to live in a car on the road in a van down by the river and, and you know, do thousands and thousands of shows rather than try to write for everybody on the planet. He's a node. That's what I call him. Yeah. Because ever since I met him, it's like with you. Like, you know, I walked down to the office to, to Richard and I'm like – Dan staying with Phil Roy. And Richard's like, of course he of is. Of course I am. <laughs> well, and I was looking up the show going, okay, wow, this is this looks really cool. Interesting, interesting. There he is. <laughs> and so I said, dude, I'm doing three song stories. He goes, oh, yeah, you're going to have a good time. Huh. Okay, it's time for you to recommend three people that you'll uh, you'll pass this along to, uh, gonna, and uh, maybe we can get them on. I hope so. I actually came up with three other people, and I changed it on the fly. Uh, number one for me would be Billy Steinberg. I mentioned him earlier. Billy wrote... Like a Virgin, True Colors, Eternal Flame for the Bangles, I Get So Emotional for Whitney Houston, Alone for Heart, um, I Touch Myself for Divinals, How Do I Make You for Linda Ronstadt, um, Falling Into You for Celine Dion. He is one of the most accomplished songwriters in history. We've been friends for 35 years, and he's a music head, a serious music head who... who calls me up and says, man, I know you don't live in town anymore, but we'd sure love it if you came over and we just dove into some vinyl. And I'm going to see him a week. I'm going to see him on Monday, the 29th of January. Cool. For the first time, I haven't seen him in about five years. Cool. Um, and he's wonderful and he's smart and he's a music head. He'll have some good examples for you. Second, Susan Hayden, who is a poet author that I'm friends with. Um, she... God, she just put out a, a book, uh, sort of a, an autobiography called You Are Now a Missing Person. And um, I met her through Facebook. We had some mutual friends. She was married to an actor named Christopher Allport, who was killed 13 years ago in a, in a skiing accident in, in an avalanche in Southern California. Um, and she's just, we, we have had this romantic platonic friendship. We love each other. She's now married to a... a, a music journalist from L.A. named Steve Hockman, and they both have the same initials, S.H., and she will have some interesting choices for you. And the third choice is a woman, uh, a young artist who I just produced. I, I did my first record production with her. It started out me producing two songs, and it turned into the whole album. I had invited her. She was looking for a studio, so I recommended my producer, Jim Scott, his studio, and she said, well, would you produce this? You don't really need me. You've got Jim. She goes, I would really like your touch on this. And it turned into the whole album. The first single just hit radio and the services called Austin, Jessie Lynn Madera. And she is seriously wonderful. Very special. People hear her and they go, oh, she's country. And then they hear something go, oh, it sounds more Americana. Actually, this sounds folk. Actually, this sounds like a Kate Bush song. And it's not that she's all over the map. 
the through line is she means every word she sings. She's absolutely wonderful. And she even invited me to do a co-write with her that's ended up a duet on the record. Awesome. So she will have some good choices. Awesome. Um, last question. It's usually second to last question, but I think we're going to change it from now on. <laughs> last question. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today in the intervening years? My 14-year-old self would not believe that it happened. My 14-year-old self would say, but that was a dream that wasn't supposed to happen. You were supposed to fail at that. This is the music business. This is hit songs. This is hit movies. This is Oscars. That's not supposed to happen because I thought I would fail. I was actually, dude, I was certain I would fail. I tried anyway. And this is what, what I do when I do workshops with younger people is not don't believe you. It's not believe you will succeed. Believe in what you're creating. Dare to be self-critical enough to grow, but just don't stop. And I kept going and I learned if I had had any clue how average I was when I started, I never would have had the strength to continue. But I did. And I got good at it. And I still can't quite utter the words, I'm a success at this. It, it sounds immodest, inappropriate, but it's not wrong. Hmm. I mean, I'm, at, I'm 71 years old and this is the life that I've crafted. But my 14-year-old self would say, wow, really? Hmm. You, you did it? Holy Toledo. I would have used different words than Toledo. But. Well, thanks for doing this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. Right back at you. Right back at you. It's always great when they're fun. And this has been really, really fun. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared Gonzalez. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. And our theme song was made by Dave Dave, Dave Cowan, and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're handing it off to Dan and his guitar. Here's him performing his song, Bulletproof Heart, live in our studio. I had a dream, I flew like a bird To the top of the mountain, and there you were Bathed in the shadows, alone in the dark with a lock and chain around your bulletproof heart Minute by minute, time after time Body to body, crossing over the line Wrapped in each other, a shower of sparks Began to melt the ice away from your bulletproof heart Somebody tell me please, are we really here? I opened my eyes and you disappeared And all the king's horses and all the king's men Can't put the genie back in the bottle again now I try to remember To try to forget The way you felt that night 
But it ain't happened yet One perfect kiss Blew the shackles apart That keep you locked inside Your bulletproof heart Won't somebody please tell me, please, what's happening here? The image is hazy, but the memory's so clear. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put the genie back in the bottle again. So, where are the fault lines? Deep are the ties And can I ever touch the fire I see in your eyes We can come together Or we'll come apart But I cannot come away From your bulletproof heart Your bulletproof heart Too hard to imagine Too late to pretend That all the things we said and did Won't happen again So how do we finish? Where do we start? To break down the walls around Your bulletproof heart Your bulletproof heart Keep listening.